Hey, murder lovers. My name is Mackenzie. This is Fatina. And you're listening to Stranger Danger, a true crime podcast. Welcome back. Welcome back. We should just do ASMR the whole time. No. <laughs> Denied. <laughs> when this goes up, though, it will officially be November. Yay! Which is... Your favorite holiday month. My favorite holiday <laughs> month of the year. The best holiday, and it gets skipped over year after year. Everybody goes straight from Halloween to Christmas, and Thanksgiving doesn't get its moment to shine. I and love Thanksgiving. Very upsetting to Not me. Not more than Halloween, but I like Thanksgiving I a lot. I love Thanksgiving. It's all, like, just about the food and, like, <laughs> not I family in it. Family. <laughs> I mean, like, yeah, but, like, all the other pressure and everything like that. Like, I get to show up in sweats, and the whole point is to consume as much food as possible. And that is a challenge I can rise to. Oh, turkeys over your head is totally normal. That's it's totally literally fine. literally all of my favorite foods. Turkey, mashed potatoes, Every single carb you can think of, like the rolls, the mashed potatoes, uh, anything else, I don't really know. The pies, the gravy, like I. We should find I a good um, Thanksgiving. But for, by the time that Thanksgiving comes out, we should find a good Thanksgiving true crime story, and put that out so that while people are cooking, they can listen. To <laughs> they can listen to that. Perfect. So stray away from cannibalism. Yeah. Although, no, no, no. although. <laughs> I have a good cannibalism one Ooh, lined up. Not for Thanksgiving. <laughs> Do that for Christmas. Get people in the season. All right. So uh, today's case is brought to you by... I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> um, so today's case, I, uh, of course, had to do a deep dive because when do I not? So I ordered a book and... I really commend you for your, I, like... I love the books. I, I My ADHD and my procrastination just doesn't let me plan that far in advance. I splurged, though, and I bought the audiobook, too, along with the book. Oh. I know. Okay. I started fancy. Um, totally worth it, because I was able to listen to it as you could see the words being highlighted and read it, and you can pause it and highlight your own things, so... Oh, that's right. You do Kindle. Yeah. Well, no, I didn't do it again on purpose. It was just because it's such an old book. The only ones that I could find, I couldn't find it at our local bookstores, was eBay, and it was like a two-week thing, and mm. that's not enough time to get it, read it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Digest it. So I just ordered it on Kindle and did the audiobook too, and it was totally worth it. So <sighs> I am covering the Eastburn murders. Eastburn is their last name. And this is also known as, or it's been called before the Mother's Day murders, even though it didn't actually happen on Mother's Day. I'll explain that a little bit further. Okay. But because the nature of the crime and when they were discovered was Mother's Day, it's also been known that. But very, very commonly, and um, it's referred to as the Eastburn murders. So this is a story, a case that goes back to 1985 in, is it Fayetteville? Fay Fayetteville. 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 Sure. Okay. In North Carolina. That we know. <laughs> Fayetteville, North Carolina in 1985. So I'm going to start off a little bit, giving you a little bit of background, just how this all came about. So this took place in the Fort Bragg 
area of North Carolina in Fayetteville. And there was a family called the Seafields, and they lived next door to the Eastburn family. The Eastburn family was mom and dad, three little kids. The kids are Kara. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Is it spelled Kara or Kara? No, Kara. Okay. It's Kara, Aaron, and Jana. Uh, they were ages five, three, and a year and a half. Okay. Well, almost, almost two years, 22 months. But... So three little girls, uh, mom and dad. Dad was the one in the military. He was Air Force. And he was recently assigned to do a more specific, um, to a more specific squadron. He was training at the officer school in Montgomery, Alabama, even though his family remained in North Carolina um, while he was doing this training, it was supposed to be like an eight-week training. He was preparing to do a liaison. He was going to be stationed out in London to be a liaison with the Air Force. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So he was doing his training out in Alabama because this was 1985. There wasn't email. There wasn't cell phones. So how he communicated back. It was the Stone Age. Right. <laughs> so he sent a pigeon. No, I'm just kidding. So how he would communicate every uh, every so often with his wife was one call a week, just because they were collect calls. Yeah. Um, and they planned it out so that every Friday night he would call, he would wait by the phone and she would call um, because it was cheaper for her to call than him call out. And um, they would just have their weekly chats, but they also wrote letters back and forth. So it was like Friday up. night date night on the yes, phone. That's it adorable. was for them. So then um, that was just a routine uh, until he got back. And they were, as soon as he got back, they were going to be relocating to London for his next assignment. Okay. During his assignment, um, Gary was in, in, in Alabama. Katie, the wife, stayed at home and she was preparing things for the move. One of the things that she had to prepare for the move was they were going to be rehoming their dog, Dixie. It was just, she was a little older in age, not too far, but it was going to be too much for the dog to relocate and just yeah. have that big flight and all that. And so, have to fly cargo. Exactly. Yeah. So it was going to be too much pressure on the little doggy. So they just decided as a family, they were going to rehome her to someone local there. So she put an ad on the paper saying that she wanted to rehome Dixie okay. and she was asking for I believe like a rehoming fee of like $50 or something. Now the Seafelds live next door. Bob Seafeld, him and his wife, they had a very great relationship with this family. The Seafelds didn't have any kids at home at this time and Every day when he got home from work, from being at the base, he got back home. He would see the three kids out in the play in, in the front yard, and Katie would be on the porch watching them. And the kids loved him like a grandfather. And he would always ask Katie, hey, can they come in for a cookie or something? And then when she gave him permission, they came in. Katie and Bob's wife had a good relationship. So the week of that first week of May, um, it was just like any normal week. Uh, the girls on that Tuesday had, he had come home from work. The girls had come in. Um, it was later in the evening. So one of them, uh, already Jenna, the little baby girl already had her little PJs on and they came in, they had a cookie and 
the the wife's talked there was nothing abnormal going on and then the week kind of went on now it came around to like it was saturday morning when bob realized there's a stroller out he hasn't seen the girls in three days they're usually outside the house every single day so he didn't see them wednesday thursday friday outside normally like when he does every time he comes home from work and he sees that the stroller's out on the front porch it hasn't moved in three days and then him and his wife are talking and they're like hey we haven't seen the Eastburns and he says well maybe they took a trip down to go see dad in Alabama for Mother's Day or something or they took a trip together for Mother's Day because it's that coming Sunday right and then the wife's like but their car hasn't moved in three days so they're mm. like, that's weird. Yeah, they're not So gone. Gary's like, I'm going to go, not Gary, I'm sorry, Bob said, Bob said, I'm going to go knock on their door, just check in on them. He knocks on the door, quiet. He knocks on the door a little bit harder, and he hears a baby crying. Oh, no. Oh, no. And then he's like, am I crazy? Because it's really faint. He just hears kind of whimpering. He knocks again, and there's quiet. So he goes and grabs his wife and he's like, I swear I heard the baby crying. And then he knocks again and they hear a baby crying and the wife immediately goes, that's Jana. That's the baby crying. The 22 month old. Yes. Okay. So then Bob's like, go call the babysitter that they usually use. She's like the neighborhood babysitter. Go call Julie. So she rushes home. Of course, this is home phone time. She flips through the phone book feverishly, and she finds Julie's phone number, and she calls Julie, and she's like, hey, do you know where they're at? Are you? Are they supposed to be there? Like, who, what's going on? Julie rushes over. She's just a couple houses down, and she said, no, I haven't seen them since Tuesday. I had come over because sometimes Julie, the babysitter, came over. She was really good friends with the wife she was 15 years old at the time she said that she would have her come over because sometimes the girls just would eat their food better when julie was there so sometimes they would she just came over just for feeding time yeah ex- okay. sometimes so she said she saw them last on tuesday and then they at that point they're like okay well we hear the baby so we need to call the police and have them come do a welfare check So they call the police, and at first it just seems like it's going to be a welfare check. And then they knock. They don't hear anything, the cop that comes over. And they knock again, and they hear the baby crying. And then, so the wife is going to go open the window. Bob's like, no, don't open anything. Don't touch anything. Because he's MP, so he knows not to, like, let her touch anything just in case it is a crime scene. Yeah. Smart man. Absolutely. So she's like, well, the back windows open so the cop uses that window and as soon as he opens the window he smells oh no death he sees Jana crying in her crib she's up in their crib she is crying grabs her puts her out the window gives her to bob bob gives it to to her wife to his wife and then he's like smells like death in here i'm gonna go look oh and what he finds is Katie, the, the, the mom, dead in her bedroom, along with the older girl, 
Kara. And then he comes out. He's like, there's two dead bodies in there. Bob's wife's like, there's one more kid missing. So he goes and does another round, and he finds the second kid. So also dead. Also dead. Aye. So there's three dead people in the house. And that was on May 12th. What day and of the week was this? This was a Saturday. Sorry. So she missed her phone date. Sorry, a Sunday. So she missed her phone date. So what's happening in between that is that Gary, while he's in Alabama, they missed her phone date. And he's already spinning things in his head like, what's going on? Something's at first, wrong. it was just like, maybe they spent the night at a friend's house. Not a big deal. But then he tried calling again, which he normally didn't because it cost them money. So he tried calling again and again, and no one was answering. And then by the time that the detectives called him, because he was expecting a call, either from his wife or something, when they passed them the phone and they told him it's a detective, because he's a smart man, the first words out of his mouth were, how many of them are dead? So at that point, the detectives were like, wait, what? (laughs) How do you know? Sir, you're in Alabama. And they flew him out. They wouldn't tell him how many, who, what, where, anything. So wrong. They put him on a plane. It was like a two and a half hour plane ride in. And of course, they took him straight to interrogation. Now, as far as the the bodies go, um, it's, it's worth mentioning the degree of the attacks just because it does play a role into it. So Katie had been completely stripped down from the waist. She had been sexually abused and she had been stabbed 15 times. Semen was also found inside of her body. And Kara, um, the five-year-old, had been stabbed repeatedly in the chest. And Aaron, the three-year-old, was bludgeoned in the chest in the back. Aaron was found underneath her bed uh, sheets because so Kara was in the bedroom with her mom. So it seemed like maybe she was sleeping with mom or something. The blood trail, it seemed like there was a knocked over basket that had semi folded clothes in it. So it looked like maybe someone surprised uh, Katie while she was folding clothes that night and then Mm -hmm. attacked her. And there was blood leading from the living room into her bedroom because I'm sure she was trying to get away. But then the girl, there was one of the girls in her bed. So that was also became a victim. And then um, I don't know if the other one made a noise or what, but also was found in her own bedroom. So very gruesome attack. Yeah. Um, The detectives found that they did, you know, luminol testing. They collected evidence. So they found the semen. They didn't find a murder weapon. Um, but they, with the luminol testing, what they found was that a lot of it had been cleaned up. At least what would have been, like, the traces of someone leaving had been cleaned up. There were some fingerprints that were found and some palm prints that were found. But, of course, at this point, there's no leads on anything. There was also a blood smear on one of the walls that was give or take about calf length, calf height, that would have been what the detectives think left by possibly a corduroy type pant rubbing against it. Okay. So there was a very distinct ribbed pattern in the blood stain. 
Okay. And this it. is a very important. I swear to God, if you tell me it was Bob, I'm going to be so upset. No. Okay. It's not Bob. I'm like, who would wear no, corduroys? No, no. I know. <laughs> so the youngest child, uh, Jana, the one that was found alive, she was in her crib. It's thought that she was only left to be alive because she was so young and she wouldn't have been able to identify anyone. I can't believe that baby was age. still alive that many days later. So because, because she had been completely abandoned she was in a really right she had a diaper rash she was suffering from diarrhea she was dehydrated so the medical professionals that you know they took her directly to the hospital they said that had she been alone in that house for three to five more hours by herself she might have passed too just by how bad of shape she was in. Exactly. Yeah. Her teeth were turning black from so much dehydration. Oh, yeah. poor baby. Okay. So, the husband flies in from Alabama. At this point, he has no clue what's going on. He just knows that he's been told there's been a death in the family. I just think that's so wrong. It's awful, but... I understand, like, wanting to get his reaction and everything like that, but it does seem very cruel to do to somebody. Yeah. So, they tell him kind of what happened they completely rule him out he of course has an alibi he's in a whole nother state he's surrounded by military personnel yeah he was in his you know room when this happened in in alabama so they completely rule him out the husband had nothing to do with it yeah so the same night though they interview everyone that's there they interview the seafelds about how they went and knocked you know, on their door, mm-hmm. how long they'd been seeing the car sitting there, trying to get a timeline. And they also talked to Julie, the babysitter, because she's also had a lot of contact with the family and probably the day of the murders, yeah. not the night of, but the day of. And they asked her, like, hey, is there anything weird? Have, have you noticed anything? So both her and Katie's husband account that as soon as Gary left for Alabama... Katie started getting weird phone calls. Getting weird phone calls like, hey, I know you're on Summer Hill Road. I'm going to come see you tonight. Ooh. Or you're looking particularly pretty tonight. Ugh. Julie said that, you know, Katie had told her about these phone calls coming in just because when she was babysitting, those calls were coming yeah, in too. that's fair. So that she had told her, if you get any of these calls, just hang up, ignore them. Like, don't. Don't try and talk to the person, right? And Julie said that she had gotten a couple phone calls herself and that one of them was really weird. Like, I'm going to, I want to see your boobs or something like that. But it was Mm. specifically to her and not about Katie. Oh. So she felt like the house was being watched. Yeah. I don't know who needs to hear this right now, but like stalking is not our love language. No No female likes that. So, so that was kind of telling the detectives, okay, so there's obviously someone that has been watching Katie that knows that her husband is away and they, you know, this is probably the person that we're looking for. On top of that, Julie also tells them that one of the few messages that she actually did take down was from a woman named Angela that had called a couple days earlier about the dog Dixie. Oh, okay. Okay. And so she had taken down her phone number and said, like, you know, this person's is interested in meeting Dixie. Okay. So a couple of days go by and then the detectives are like, okay, let's follow this dog lead. 
because we have nothing else to go on. Right. And then at the same time, as they're still at the crime scene collecting all this evidence, there is this man that comes along. He is part of the community. His name is Patrick Cohn. And against everything in his body and his mind that was saying, I don't want to get involved, I don't want to get involved, he felt like he needed to come forward because he had seen someone coming out of that driveway Tuesday night. So he said he was walking around the neighborhood yeah. Um, and he wasn't a transient man or anything. He he just liked to walk around late. And he was walking, I believe, back from the store and he saw someone six foot tallish, blonde, with a beanie cap on and a bag over their shoulder coming out of their driveway. And they kind of acknowledged each other. And he said that the person that acknowledged him said, getting an early start to my day, and it was like 3 o'clock in the morning. And that person got into a small, white, little car, and he identified that as a small Chevette. So a small little hatchback car, white. Very important. So Patrick Cohn, of course, now the detective's like, okay, let's let's go with this, right? Yeah. Because you saw someone the night of the murders. Yeah. 3 a.m. A man's not really supposed to be at that house. Exactly. Yeah. So then they're like, okay, are you willing to come in and do a sketch? And Patrick Cohn was all about it. He's like, yep, it's fresh in my memory. Let's sit down with a sketch artist. He was very detailed about the sketch to the point where they spent hours upon hours, like perfecting it to Patrick Cohn's specifications. He's like, nope, like, do this a little, you know, the jaw is this way. Like, he spent hours doing this sketch for the sketch artist. Patrick is seeming suspicious to me right now. A little bit. So, you know, his dad, Patrick Cohn's like, like, what are you getting yourself involved in? You know, this is a triple murder. This is not a one and done type of thing. Like, this is years. Yeah. You just open the door to So, um, also that's a very specific, uh, description to be able to give for somebody that you just saw in passing. Right. And shared one sentence with. And like 3.30 in the morning. Yeah. Very, very late in in the night or morning, early in the morning. As Cardi would say, that's weird. (laughs) That's suspicious. (laughs) So they come up with a sketch. So now that together with the idea of whoever might have come and gotten the dog, they put out media information. So they put it out in the media, and Angela is sitting in her living room. Her name is Angela Hennis. She's sitting in her living room, and she sees this news report come on that they're looking for this person that may or may not have gone and picked up the dog, and in a white Chevette, Six foot tall, blonde mustache with a black sports jacket. She turns around. She's like, Tim, they're describing you. Damn. And Tim is the one that went and got the dog. So they actually did go and pick up this dog. Yes. Oh, the dog made it out. Yeah. Yeah. That's the moral of the story. (laughs) The story is done. Thank you. The animal lovers are like, thank God. So a couple of days before the murders happen, Angela had first called and contacted Katie about getting 
Dixie. Yeah. And then it was actually Tim who was most interested because he had had the same type of dog growing up and he knew that it was a good hunting dog. What kind of dog so was this? So it was a an English setter. Oh, those are great hunting dogs. Yep. yep. So because he had had one growing up and he was interested in hunting and all these things, he was interested in like, of course, bringing her up to do that. 50 bucks. Right. Yeah. So he said that, um, so because of the sketch that matched her husband, she's like, Tim, this is you. He hadn't even gotten to work that day. He was, they were still getting ready in the morning. And so he's like, uh, shit. Yeah, that's me on the on the sketch yeah why does it look like me and yes i went and picked up this dog and i do drive this car right so what happened is that tim very picked it up at 3 a.m no so tim very unsuspectingly just went into the police department and said hey you're looking for the person that picked up the dog that was me okay good job tim so tim's like I, you know, yeah, don't need clear to my search name. for me. I'm right here. Right. Yeah. I'm here. And I'm cooperating. The detectives right away make him waive his rights. Okay. Right away. They also ask him for all kinds of samples hair, blood. So, don't do it, fingerprints. Yeah. He did it all. I mean, no I attorney present. He did honesty, it. Right. But like, you were in the house picking up the dog. Your stuff exactly. is going to be around that house. So. He's like, yeah, absolutely. They kept them there for hours, hours. So they didn't let him leave till the evening because at the end of it all, he's just like, I wasn't there. I went and picked up the dog like two days before that. Like, I had nothing to do with that. I, you know, I picked up the dog. She said she would call me um, just to check in on the dog, make sure that the ha- the dog is like rehoming right and, you know, acclimating to the new house and whatnot. But that was it. That's all we said. Um, she was asking for $50 as a rehoming fee, but that she said that that was just something that she put on the newspaper because whoever was willing to pay for $50 for the dog. She wants somebody that was like, oh, exactly. free dogs that I can do whatever I want with. Exactly. So yeah. she's like, I'm going to put $50, but I'm not actually going to charge you anything. I just wanted someone that was actually going to fall in love with the dog to give it to. He said that was the extent of their conversation. Um, the two days before... When he came over, he said it was nighttime and that was or evening because Katie had put the kids to bed because they didn't want the whole drama of the dog, dog. leaving. Oh, they woke up and, and the dog was gone. Right. But, you know, she was doing the mom thing. And so what happened after that is that they're like, okay, fine. Yeah, you can leave <laughs> to Tim Hennis. So they let him go that evening. By 2 o'clock in the morning, they were knocking down his door with a warrant. Oh, my God. Warrant for his arrest, warrant for his house. I don't necessarily blame them because you have an eyewitness that is putting him there at the day and time that it happened. Right. And it matches him to an exact T, right? As far as the description goes, the car. Yeah. We know he was in the house. And so right away, he calls his parents. They're in Florida. Parents are retired. The dad's like an old IBM exec. He was like a super smart engineer guy. They had just started their dream old people life in Florida. And <laughs> Old people life. You know. Retirement. Sure. <laughs> well, and so the, Tim's dad was like, 
Wait, what? <laughs> First of all, they got woken up out yeah. of sleep from this with this information. Angela's screaming into the phone like, hey, Tim's getting arrested for triple murder, all these things. So the parents right away, uh, the dad right away um, coordinates coming back up to North Carolina to be with his son to figure out what the hell is happening. Meanwhile, the the whole case is still developing. Mm-hmm. So they had Gary, the husband, walk through the house the only thing that they had cleaned up or taken away was the bodies at this point. This house was very much still a crime scene. Yeah. But they had him walk through to see if there was anything missing. Sure. Besides. Anything. Yeah, Right. What was out of the norm. So the only things that he noticed were missing were a box of documents, which had like their wills and their ATM information. Her bank card was missing. Her ATM card was missing. But other than that, it didn't seem like it was a robbery. Okay. Okay. And then the only other bit of information that the detectives found at the scene, really, really odd, was the fingertip of a rubber glove, of a latex glove. Okay. And they found like a single pubic hair around the house. That didn't belong to That didn't belong to the husband and it didn't belong to Katie. Here's the crazy part. In 1970, five miles down the road, there had also been a triple murder, and it's it's known as the McDonald murders. It's the McDonald family. The husband was also military. He was a Green Beret doctor, and he had his defense, his story was that there had been intruders that broke into the house, stabbed his entire family, including his pregnant wife, and had let uh, one of the kids had lived, and they stabbed him too. He lived, but ultimately they convicted him of the murder of all three. No, he took the fall for it. The dad. Even though he'd been attacked himself? He'd been kind of attacked himself. <laughs> Maybe I'll cover that in another one. His stab wounds had... There were there, there was no comparison to the stab wounds to oh, his family. Oh, they were very superficial? Yes. So did he actually do it then? It sounds like he did. Oh, shit. Okay. So he's maintaining his innocence. But because he had this whole story about like... He said hippies had broken into his house uh. and it was four men and they were yelling like acids groovy and like down with the pigs. It was just, it was just weird. This is after Charles Manson? 70. So yes. No. Um, he was convicted. He ser- he was serving a life sentence at the time. The prosecutors at the time were up for re-election or the judges were up for re-election. Oh, wait. Sorry. Um, I just Googled it because I was curious. The Tate LaBianca murders happened in 1969. Oh, so right after. Right after. Okay. Because I was like, this sounds a little... Yeah. yeah." At the McDonald murders, there was also a single fingertip from a latex glove found. Interesting. Very interesting. And so there's that. I'll leave you with that nugget. I'll come back to it. Okay. 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 So they're doing their investigation, and Tim is absolutely maintaining his innocence. He's like, that, it wasn't me. I have nothing to do with it. And then this old girlfriend comes forth, 
forward. And she says, actually, the night of the murders, Tim was with me. <laughs> because that weekend of Mother's Day weekend, yeah. Tim actually, uh, well, that week, he had what's called CQ duty. So he had to stay guard over the quarters. Like there's a couple nights of weekend or a month that each person has to do overnight do watches. Yeah. Right. So because he knew that he wouldn't be available on Mother's Day and it was his wife's first Mother's Day, she was going to go spend it down with her family. So he drove her down like halfway and her dad met her. So he dropped her off. So he was home alone. Mm. But that night of the murders, he was at his post at the barracks and they and he had records of him being there, except for there were some gaps because for what. As far as he knew, it was an uneventful night. Uh huh. So there was a lot of gaps as far as the timeline goes. Yeah. Although some people do put him there at around eleven thirty, which is when they're thinking the the murders happened, but there's no written record of it. Okay. There is a record of like a security record of like, hey, I went and locked in this door. I went and locked this door. He said mostly his job as CQ was to like. Go go bail any soldiers out that were drunkenly disorderly somewhere or let people in that forgot their keys and whatnot. So that was mainly their duties. And someone did put him there at 1130 saying that they had asked him to come let him in. And but there's no actual record of it. And then these people didn't really want to get involved as far as testifying because yeah. it's a triple murder case. Right. So, so, so that's this, happening. <laughs> so wait, so his ex-girlfriend is like... So his ex, sorry, so his ex-girlfriend um, said that he had come over earlier in the night after he had dropped off his wife and he had come over, they had watched a couple shows, he didn't even make a move on her, he just wanted to hang out and talk, and that she, that he left at around 9. Oh. 9, 9.30. That's not nearly as scandalous so, as I thought it was going to no. be. No, but of course that made a little rift between him and his wife, because he's like, what the hell were you doing uh, at yeah. ex-girlfriend's house? Out here thawing and bopping while I'm... Right. Just... <laughs> well, I'm trying to go enjoy Mother's Day. Yeah. Right. The stolen ATM card... Because it was stolen along with the pin, it was very easy to track down where it had been used. So the ATM had been used the night of May 10th and the morning of May 11th. In total, only $300 were taken out. So they tried to link this to Hennis by saying that he was late on his, on his monthly rent payment that mm -hmm. month. They tried to use his history as well because... In the past, before he was military, he had written some bad checks. So they're trying to say he's just not good with money. So this was definitely a motive. $300 is definitely a motive for a triple murder. Okay. So on the morning of May 11th, the ATM was used with her card at 8.55 in the morning. This would have been at an ATM that would have been completely out of the way for Fort Bragg. It was like off the station. And it would have been like 20, 25 minutes, even though there was like two or three ATMs in between there that could have mm -hmm. totally been used. They tracked down, because of the bank records, the person that used the ATM afterwards, which was three and a half minutes after that transaction. So at 8.55, the transaction with Katie's card started. At 8.56, it had ended. And by 8.59 
or yeah, 8.59, 9 a.m., there was a, n- a new transaction, so they tracked that person down. That was Lucille Cook. So Gosh. Lucille Cook, the, pr- the prosecution approached her, and they said, hey, do you remember seeing the person that was at the ATM right before you? And she said, no, I, I don't. I wouldn't either. Yeah. And so the prosecution, this is where they start getting a little sketch. They showed her a lineup right then and there. Mm-hmm. It had been a couple of weeks. And Tim, she already said she didn't remember. Tim Hennis has already been in the TV, yep. on the TV. They're showing his picture and his face everywhere. Right. So, of course, when they show her a mock-up of eight pictures, she's like, well, this guy looks familiar. Hello. You saw him on You've TV. You've seen him yeah. for the last four weeks on TV. So the prosecution took that and they ran with it. Of course. As far as like this members only jacket and the beanie, Tim did have like this, it's almost like a bomber type jacket. Yeah. So he had a jacket like that and his wife confirmed that he had a jacket like that, but it was at the bottom of the laundry basket before Uh she left. And she said that the baby days before that had sped up on it. So he was supposed to take it to the dry cleaners, but the prosecution took this as, nope, you took the jacket to the dry cleaners because you must have gotten blood on it. Ugh. Okay. The morning after, so May 11th, after the, the morning after the murders, now the neighbors are coming forward saying he actually had a barrel of stuff burning in his backyard. And this is supposedly after he started that barrel is when he took his jacket to the dry cleaners. He came back and he actually added more fuel to the fire and added more stuff to the fire. And they asked him, hey, what's, you know, what's going on with this fire in this barrel? And he said, my wife had asked me before she went on the trip that since I had time at home alone, that I was supposed to be cleaning out the shed like she had been asking me for months to do. And they're like, well, why didn't you just put the trash out? Because your pickup day is Saturday. He's like, there's too much. And I didn't want it just sitting out on the curb all week. Oh, this poor guy. He literally just wanted a damn dog. So they just... Right. So the prosecution, even both the prosecution and the defense, they had someone go through all the things that were in the barrel, still burned and all. And they couldn't find a single thing. They had hundreds upon hundreds of pieces of paper they, they tried to match to any of the documents that were stolen from the Eastburn house, like the wills or any of the documents that were in the box of documents that were stolen. Mm-hmm. Not a single piece matched an inch of the papers that were stolen from their house. And the only thing that might have been resembling something that was a link was a piece of fabric that had some ribs on it. And they're saying that it was a piece of the corduroy, corduroy pants. pants. So that was the only, like, physical thing that was matching to them. So his dad, uh, Tim's dad, poor guy. um, He's probably, like... (laughs) He, they refined it. They sold their house to try and pay for this defense. They had to put down $100,000 to try and pay for this defense. Um, But, you know, Beaver told him that Beaver is the, the defense lawyer. He's like, you know, we're... We're going to have people hate us because we're defending what they think is a triple murderer of a baby of right. babies. And the dad's like, no, I wholeheartedly believe in my son that he didn't kill these people. So they went and sold their house and 
you know, move stuff around so yeah. they can so they can have the defense for their for for Tim. Now, at this point, he was of course facing three death sentences, and they offered him, or he was facing death penalty, and they offered him just three life sentences if he would take a plea bargain, saying, "I admit, but." I don't want to be killed. I just want a life sentence. He said, absolutely not. Let's take this all the way to trial. I did not murder these people. Right. So they're like, no, let's absolutely take this to trial. Tim was 100% like, it wasn't me. I wasn't there. There was a lot of back and forth about the prosecution's method of gathering information, just like they did with the lady at the ATM. It sounds like they were not coercing, but hearing what they wanted to hear from people. Yeah. So Patrick Cohn, the the person that, you know, had the eyewitness testimony of seeing someone leaving the house, the six foot tall blonde man, the defense decided to go talk to him again. And they're like, we're going to take you out to that same street to Summerhill Road so we can see what your vantage point was. You can retell us what you saw. And they're recording all of this. Mm-hmm. And Patrick Cohn, because he, now he's deep into this, you know, being the witness, like the key witness Committed. for this trial. Yeah. He kind of is back and forth on like, maybe I'm not sure. He's like, maybe I'm not so sure. Because I know I described every single yeah. pore on his face, but now I'm not sure. But the defense is like, well, you're saying you're here and you saw the person there, like really far away. You see how that distance would have been, right? And when you were standing here, there was like a bush coming over, so it would have blocked your view. So like, what made you look that way? They were breaking down mm-hmm. his story because this is a defense, right? That's what they're supposed to do. They put him in the car. Um, They're going back to the station and they're like, can we record you? Of course, they've been recording, but they're like, can you tell us again whether or not, you know, what you think happened that night or what you remember seeing? He's like, well, I'm not sure. I just remember it was a tall guy, like wasn't very sure about the specifics of this person now. And he's like, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not sure. So the defense went and wrote that down into an affidavit, had him sign it with a notary. So it was notarized that that's what he, so they made him sign the, the the affidavit that this is his amendment to his original story about what he had seen. Uh-huh. And the defense tr- had this moment where they had to decide, do we bring this up now for the prosecution to be aware of so we can have a mistrial and they can drop this, drop the charges because this is only key witness? Yeah. Or... Do we wait till we're in trial, let them put him on the stand as the key witness, and then come forward with the information that he's actually taking it back so they look like fools, right? Yeah. But they had to make the decision and legal decision of whether or not it was legal to withhold that type of information until they're in the middle of a trial. So they tried to do a pretrial hearing of this new information of Patrick Cohn possibly rescinding his information. And at first, so they put Patrick Cohn on the stand. Mind you, he was way over at this point. 
he was like, I don't want to talk anymore. I'm done. I'm, I'm over this. Like, yeah, get me done with this. Right. So the defense put him on the stand and they're like, yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, we were talking about it. Can you repeat what you said that night? And they read him, you know, the whole affidavit word by word. And then is this your signature? He's like, yeah, but I didn't know what I was signing. I thought it was a subpoena. So now he's rescinding the rescinding. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And the prosecution asks for a break and they put Patrick Cohn into a room. They bring him lunch and everything. And they happen to leave a notepad there and a pen and like leave him there for two hours. So while he's sitting in this room absolutely alone, Patrick starts writing a letter to his mom and telling her that like, he doesn't know why he's being asked all these questions, that he signed the affidavit because he thought it was a subpoena. He didn't think it was like a, re a rescinding of his first account and that he he wishes that like people would just believe him, that what he saw that night is what he knows to be true. So after that lunch break, the prosecution came back and read that letter that he had written to his mom while in that room alone. So they completely let him let the first testimony stand oh. about this being the six foot tall blonde man that he had seen Oy that day. night. This gets fun. So they go to trial. Okay. Uh -huh. While they're in trial, one of the craziest things happened and this case actually set the precedence and it's quoted time after time now in criminal stuff like this because what the prosecution did is that they put a whiteboard directly behind Tim Hennis and they did a PowerPoint slide of all the gruesome, gruesome photos from the crime scene and like a quarter of it was shining on his face and he couldn't move. That's so messed up. So, so they put it right like over visualizing him. him in the scene. Right. So that case, this case has set the precedence that you cannot do that. Yeah. And so with that information, the lady at the ATM and the key witness, they sentenced him to death. Okay. This poor man. He literally just wanted a dog. So then one of the pieces of evidence that is super crazy is just this one pubic hair. Um because yeah. the obviously the prosecution's like, of course, this has to be the perpetrator. 1985 DNA was not really a thing yet. It didn't come around and, to the 90s. Right. So yeah. then um, they're like, <laughs> the, the defense is like, is it possible that a pubic hair could fall from a man's trousers as he's walking in? <laughs> like any of the detectives that were walking through the house or anything? And they're like, well, I guess it's possible, but unlikely that like yeah. one pubic hair and the only other thing that they had was the blood test that they could do but because it was a mixture of blood they could tell that katie's blood overpowered whoever's blood it was mixed in like diluted it so they could tell like it was i don't know the technical terms but it was like a plus one type and the other type was a plus one plus two but it could be that it could have just been a plus two because the plus one could have come from katie so and, and there was no dna so they couldn't tell whose profile it was at all okay. but it didn't match tim at the time okay okay so he's sentenced to death they set a date and everything, okay? And 
they, of course, you know, even though they set a date as it happens with death sentences, you get your, you get your chance to appeal. So they do appeal after appeal until finally the defense is granted a retrial. They were granted a retrial because the defense was so adamant that their client had not done it and his family was so adamant to keep this going and the, keep the appeals going. They found a lot of information. Right off the bat, they went and, and re-interviewed people. They interviewed the ATM lady, Lucille Cook, mm-hmm. and they asked her, can you tell us about that morning again? And she's like, well, you know, I didn't think I really remembered anything. And they're like, wait, did you tell the prosecution that? And she's like, well, yeah. And then they showed me the lineup. And they're like, oh, okay, wait, we didn't know that. We didn't know that you'd said you didn't remember anything at first. While they were in the retrial, the defense made the courtroom stay quiet for three and a half minutes, which would, would have been the time between the ATM card being used to her using her card and it just the room just grew in like anticipation that it was actually a significant amount of time yeah like people aren't even in the same parking lot right. with that amount of time. three and a half minutes is a very long time yeah and then let alone standing next to each other at the atm exactly they, the likelihood of that is right almost zero so that one started to drive a wedge yeah right And then another thing that the defense found was that the prosecution had actually withheld stuff during discovery for them. Mm. So they had withheld information that they had interviewed this young man named last name Robach. They had interviewed him because he's a six foot tall man (laughs) with a mustache that often walked the neighborhood and other neighbors said that they saw him walking around and they brought him in the prosecution at the beginning of the of the case they took his bomber jacket and they took his backpack that he always carried so like the sack over the shoulder Mm -hmm. and they never presented it to the defense oh my gosh and then robeck was really like did not want to testify that, yes, they had interviewed him because they thought, oh, shit, now they're going to try and pin this on me like they tried to pin this on te- on Hennis. Yeah. But he was just a young man who was in the neighborhood. He's like, I always just, I stayed up late, and then I always walked to the corner store if I was, you know, if I was hungry or something, like a late-night snack. It's very probable that I was walking around that night of the murder around there. So there a lot of people it's walking around very, in the neighborhood at 3 a.m. There's also... A front door neighbor that said that his little girl had come up to him and said, there's this weird van parked in front of their house. So he had kept an eye on this weird blue van that was at the house, at the Hennessy's house, like around the time of the murders. At the Hennessy's house or mm -hmm, the... Oh, In front of the Hennessy's house. And then also this blue van, Julie the babysitter said that one of the nights that she is coming back from baby, from visiting baby Jana at the hospital, she had a blue van following her. Mm. So now there's this blue van in the mix. Okay. Another thing that the defense found, um, and I think really important is that there was a newspaper delivery woman that was making her rounds and would have been making her rounds 
And she said that there was, because she would have driven on that side of the street, there was a blue van that she almost hit because she was kind of distracted and she had to, you know, drive up close to the curb to deliver newspapers. She saw someone walking out and didn't think much of it until she saw the newspaper and the TV a couple days later and she saw that Tim Hennis had been arrested and the next night she went to her bowling league and she told her very best friend, I think they got the wrong guy. She's like, that's not the guy who I saw the night of the murders or the morning of the murders coming out of that house. So she, uh, okay. So she hadn't come forward because after they had arrested Tim Hennis and after she had even told her friend, like, I think they got the wrong guy. She started getting these calls that Katie was getting saying, I know where you live. I'm going to come visit you. So the exact same calls that Katie and Julie, the babysitter, were getting at the Katie's house. Some serious Katie's house. intimidation. So because she was scared, right? Naturally, she never came forward, and it wasn't until the defense is like, "You have this information. We need you to testify because they're going to kill Tim." Right. Like he's on death penalty. An innocent man is going to die if so you don't say something. It was that instant that. Although she did not want to testify, she went she went forward with it. Good. And then Robach, even though he also didn't want to testify in court, the moment they brought him into court, he was a dead ringer if you stood him next to Tim Hennis. Six foot tall blonde man with a mustache. And we know he had a jacket and we know he had a, ca- right. a backpack that he carried around with him. So that information was coming out in the retrial. And then mm-hmm. defen- the defense also brought up like the misconduct of the prosecution yeah. in the previous trial. Although because of the retrial, the old prosecution was no longer in that area. They were assigned new prosecutors. So he's like, although it's not these two specific prosecutors, it's the actions of the last two that we're right. trying to go against here. And... They deemed that the pictures being shown on Hennessy's face and into the background were definitely inflammatory. And that definitely could sway a jury just because of the gruesomeness of the pictures and him being right there with the pictures. They did 12 hours deliberation on that and completely rescinded his not guilty. Yay! Not guilty. So they took him off of death row. So they actually, like, declared him not guilty instead of just, what do they call that when they... Commute? Yes, they commute somebody's sentence. Thank you. They completely ruled him not guilty. He got he was able to leave and go home that night to his daughter. He had missed out four years of her life now. She was only about a year old when he first went into prison. Yeah. Um, after that, Gary Eastburn had his baby Jana, right, to grow, you know, help her grow up. He ended up moving to London. Six years later, he met his new wife. And they started a life in London. Eventually, they were um, relocated after being in the Air Force for several years. He finally returned to the States and ended up settling down in Washington State. Okay. Now, after his acquittal, Tim Hennis didn't want to re-enroll, but he knew he had to for benefits and 
that was, I mean, it was his career. What do you mean, like, re-enlisted? Re-enlist to, on, to the army. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yes. I wasn't sure if he would be able to do that, because... He was, because they they put him as uh, not guilty. Okay, so he hadn't technically been convicted. Right. Exactly. Okay. So, he went down to Fort Bragg, and he's like, I don't want to be at this station anymore. I want to be relocated. So eventually he was relocated. The first day that he was back, he had actually been uh, marked as AWOL because he hadn't, he had just one one day just up and left, right? Because yeah. he had worked the day that he went into the police station saying, hey, I'm here to help. Oh, okay. So got he it. was technically AWOL. So eventually they figured that out. He worked his way up through the ranks. He was eventually um, promoted to staff sergeant. He saw service in Iraq during Operation Desert Storm. He was also in Somalia. Um, He won several awards and accolades for his service. And in 1998, they moved to Fort Lewis in Washington. So both families are now in Washington. Are now in Washington. Okay. There's more. Okay. So, who did this murder, right? That is what I would like to know, yes. Okay. Um, Was it Patrick? So, 20 years later... So, actually, Patrick, before I get to that, after all of this happened with the trials and whatnot, actually, during the second trial, he had been in jail for ATM fraud. Okay. He, there, him and his girlfriend oh. had stolen or found someone's wallet and were trying to use it. And he was actually in jail during the second trial. Oh, so he has an affinity for other people's ATM cards, you uh-huh. say? Huh. Interesting. So, in 2006, so 20 years later after the murders. Yeah. DNA is a thing now. It most certainly is. Yep. And... The detective that did cold cases was actually at some convention, and he's like, you know what case I'm going to look at? That Eastburn murders. Still bugging me. There's still a sample of semen that has never been tested. There was semen that had never been tested because they didn't have that capacity then in 1985. Okay. And there was a three, I think three million, or... What are the odds? Hold on. Let One me out of three million. It was an astronomical number that it was none other than Tim Hennis. <gasps> no. Oh, my God. What? So Tim Hennis actually did it? I gasped just like that when I found out. No. Oh, no. So, I've been cheering for him this whole time. I know. You guys. Oh. I know. Oh, my gosh. No, I, I felt so bad. I was like, the man just wanted a dog. He just wanted a dog. And now he's losing so much of his life. And I was on his... We were all rooting for you, Tim. <laughs> I all rooting for you. I cannot believe this. I'm oh. having such a Tyra Banks moment. I know. <gasps> Tell me about it. No. When I learned that, I gasped just the same. And Kara's like, what the hell is wrong with you? I was like, it was Tim Hennis. It was him the whole time. So not only did he go through the first trial, the second trial, now there's going to be a third trial. Can there be a third trial? Because the first two, he was a civilian, right? There can't be 
double jeopardy. jeopardy. They can't be double jeopardy on so a civilian. He was tried as a. So the military reenlisted him or reactivated him. Yeah. Brought him on back to the base as a ruse. Yeah. And charged him again. Oh, because the military has their own rules. Oh, they have their they own rules. They really do. Rules. And their own court of law and their own punishment system. And so he was brought up on military charges. Mm-hmm. So now he I, was brought back to trial. My head is exploding <laughs> right now. You have no idea. This whole time I was like, it was Patrick. It was I know. Patrick. Tim just wanted a dog. He's innocent. This poor man. Oh, I'm so upset. That's why I didn't want to stop you as you oh were rooting for him. I was like, this is going to be so good. I like literally have <laughs> such regrets. I feel like I need to shower after rooting for him. <gasps> you guys. So then they they brought him back on and they went through the whole trial and now his defense attorneys were saying that he had consensual sex with Katie and that's why his semen was found there. And so of course the prosecutors are like no. no. So their idea of what He should happened, have said that a long time mm-hmm. ago if that were the case. So the idea that the prosecutors brought forward is that he went and saw his ex-girlfriend that night and because she didn't want anything to do physically he she rejected him because she was like no you have a wife you have a brand new kid what are you doing he was mad and he had and he knew of this woman whose husband was away had no one else that could possibly he defend had her actually gone to get the he dog had gone to get the dog and that he went and attacked her that night He's tried to appeal and appeal and appeal this. So was he convicted? He was convicted again. He's sitting on death row right now at Fort Leavenworth. <gasps> In Fort Leavenworth? So, yeah, he's sitting there right now. He's still trying appeals. So who's making all the phone calls? So that's the thing. So I did fail to mention this. I'm sorry. So the first time that he was in prison, after the first conviction, he received some cryptic letters that said here i'll read the letters to you because they're short but they leave a lot to be interpreted so the letter said here are the letters that he got he said dear mr hennis i did the crime i murdered the eastburns sorry you're doing the time i'll be safely out of north carolina when you read this thanks mr x the second letter uh, this the second one was sent to the defense. It said, I'm passing through Fayetteville on my way to New Jersey. I murdered the Eastburns. I did the crime. Hennis is doing the time. Thanks again, Mr. X. So here's what's funny about these letters. You'll have to zoom in and we'll post these on, on our socials as well. But there's... You see how on that H, there's like a little squiggle on top of it? Yeah. So if you read the little things that are off like that on the whole letter, it spells the acronym or the initials WHJR, which was the name of a local man who worked at a supermarket who around the dates of the murder had like scratches on his face and said that he had been mugged and then shortly after moved because he was having financial problems, ended up being a trucker. And was never seen in that town again. So if someone was passing through, that would fit if they're a trucker from one state to another. I'm so confused. I know. 
So here's another theory. This one's but even... But did he actually do the phone calls? We don't know. Nobody knows Nobody who actually knows made those calls. Nobody knows who the phone calls. calls are. So... Here's another theory, which is crazy, but totally worth mentioning. So we're going back to Julie, uh-huh. the babysitter. So going back to the McDonald murders that happened in 1970. Uh-huh. So they happened right along the time that Julie was born. So she was a baby when this happened. So she grew up, though, with this true crime obsession with the McDonald murders because there was books and there was... TVs for uh, movies for TV made and they're still up on the internet now they're called Fatal Vision there's actually a show on FX on it as well about the McDonald murders and about how this Green Beret is may or may not be innocent or guilty who knows so there's this whole obsession and he had this whole following of people who believed him that he's not guilty one of those groupies was Julie the babysitter To the point where she was writing to him in jail, in prison. She had this obsession with, like, Lizzie Borden and the McDonald murders and, like, all these things that are, like... Relatable. We would be friends. Yeah. So, Julie also told the detectives at one point that, I guess, maybe to excuse any, like, male or other fingerprint DNA in the house, she said that from time to time... Katie would allow her to bring in, like, her guy friends to the house while she was babysitting. Mm. And Gary was like, that's not true. My wife would never allow that. I would never allow that. We would never give her permission to do that. And so Julie was a little bit sketch um, in that sense. Yeah. And there was also one of her friends, or potentially a boyfriend, who drove a blue van. Who might have been the blue van that people saw in front of that house. Oh, yes. Okay. And she wrote back and forth with Jeffrey McDonald, the supposed or alleged perpetrator of the McDonald murders, the husband. And the theory is that Jeffrey McDonald from prison asked her to stage the same kind of murder as his family so he can get off on a copycat-like murder being... Or, like, a same murderer with the same yeah, M.O. being out a there. serial killer. Because as soon as Tim Hennis was arrested, he completely cut off communication with her. Because there was no longer this, like, who may have done it? It was like they found someone, they're pinning it on someone. Well, that and of course flopped. he couldn't keep communicating with the babysitter. But how would she plant his DNA? I don't know. My God. The defense also tried to say that um, now after this third trial, that the DNA lab that was doing that had been under a lot of scrutiny, that they had messed up other samples before, that they ha- there could have been any cross-contamination with any of the other evidence or maybe his own samples that he had provided. So... The defense tried to bring that up for us as a mistrial or another appeal. And the judge was like, how are you going to tell me that the lab has issues, but you've already admitted that he had consensual sex with her? So you can't have it both ways. Yeah, definitely not. So that's it. (laughs) That's the story of the Eastburn murders. Oh, my God. Three trials. So I just looked up Fort Leavenworth. Mm -hmm. Um, So it is a federal penitentiary. Mm -hmm. So it houses soldiers who are serving 
longer than five years in one day, as well as all officers. And it also houses like regular inmates that have committed federal crimes. Mm. So some of the inmates that have served time there are Machine Gun Kelly, Carl Panzram, Tom Pendergast, or Pendergast, the Birdman of Alcatraz, Whitey Bulger, Michael Vick. Mm. They've all served time there. Yep. That's a big prison. I am literally so upset with myself. You have no idea. I'm sorry. And I did think at the time, I was like, it's so weird that she's not commiserating with me, but it's fine. Whatever. Yeah. Like, yep. fine. Because <laughs> I already went through it alone. <laughs> oh, my gosh. I literally can't believe that. This whole time, I was like, it's Patrick. It's got to be Patrick. Yeah. Oh. And I was going to, like, have it be, like, my glorious moment at the end where I was like, I should be a detective. Like, I knew it the whole time. <laughs> See, I went through a roller coaster because at first, you know, especially with the book, if you, if you, I mean, go on YouTube, look up Innocent Victims. There's a movie made for TV as well. It's a whole, it was a yeah. mini series. So you can get the dramatized version of this case on YouTube. But I went through the roller coaster of it as well because at first I was like, actually, they didn't mention the, the fingertip glove at this, um, at the, uh, on this mini, mini wow mini series but i went through this roller coaster of like oh my god is there another killer is there a killer there's, on the loose yeah i feel like there's still a lot of like un- two triple murders well yeah because there's right? a lot of stuff that doesn't add up like the fingertip glove and the phone right. calls and the and that's why the fingertip glove is why i'm kind of leaning towards this julie story but then again i'm like oh the dna but I'm like, maybe she was, because uh, she was obsessed with Jeffrey McDonald. Like, they wrote yeah. a lot. And to the point where maybe her and her boyfriend and another friend, um, who never came forward to talk to the police, even though they were asked to, yeah, maybe did something to try and help Jeffrey McDonald. Because, like, the fingertip thing is just weird. One took advantage of the fact that a crime had been committed and planted evidence. Maybe. Oh, my gosh, bizarre that's one of the best cases you've done like my mind is so blown right now you have no idea the whole time yeah i have literally fought every single instinct to just google it on my phone because as soon as you started i was like i need to know who did this and i've sat here this whole time trying not to because sometimes i do that sometimes i'll google the case as you're telling it because like i i have zero patience like i just need to know yeah and I'm really glad that I didn't, but holy moly, the whole time I was like, I just need to know who nope. freaking did it. Nope. I you should have seen me too. That. I had the exact same reaction. Kara was mad at me. She's like, What are you gasping about? What's wrong? And I was like, It was Tim Hennis. I don't think I've ever like had such a genuinely <laughs> like an shocked reaction to a story. Yeah. Holy cow. Yeah, I thought, you know, God, reading the book and doing all these other research, I was like, oh my God, yay, he got off. He went and got to live with his daughter and like. And their dog. <laughs> yeah, and like they had this full life and, you know, he went and got all these accolades and the, the fact army that they and both ended respected. up back in Washington. And that was another thing. There is a 2020 special on it because Jana is now a full-grown woman. Right. And, um, you know, they're talking about how, like, how weird life is. And, like, uh, they don't know that they think it's on purpose, but it was just weird that... Well, yeah, because the military that, determines your assignment. Right. 
Well, no, they moved there on their own accord. Oh, after they right, they weren't on base they or anything. Yeah. Okay. So it was just weird that they were living thirty minutes. No, no, from no. Each but other. I mean, Tim's family didn't weren't they? Oh yeah, he was at Fort there? Lewis. Yeah, yeah, he was okay. at Fort Lewis. Yeah, yeah. So it was just um, weird that after all these years, after twenty years, they were living thirty minutes away from each other. Oh my god. Yeah. I'm like sitting here in silence, trying to get my brain to process this. <laughs> I love it. That was such a great reaction. <sighs> Wild. DNA. Wild. DNA. Well done. Well done. It's not very often people get me like that, but <laughs> well done. I love it. That was so good. All right. Well. I'm not going to be able to top that next week. If you have, no, you're doing the box. I'm getting I'm back to the haunted that. just yeah. for this exact purpose because <laughs> you will not get. I cannot even believe that. So if you have any other stories, guys, that you want us to cover, if they come with books, if you know a true, true crime book, don't send it to me. Send it to me. Send it to Fatina. Okay. I'm, I'm super into the books right now, so. I don't want to read more books. <laughs> <laughs> I've spent. You're done with school. And 29 yeah. years in school, and I don't <laughs> want to do it anymore. Yep, I'm all about it right now. I think it definitely gets my head into like it's better than just a 20 minute recap on 2020 or something. Yeah, it goes way deeper. So I can't tell you how I I'm just, I'm just happy we had the same reaction. The I mean the story the way you set up the story and like how like because I probably would have given it away so much earlier, but like the way you told that story and like really saved it for like a finale, and you're sitting there like. What was it? A one in three million chance? Oh, yeah. And I'm like, the whole time I'm like, it's Patrick, it's Patrick. But then I was like, fucking say who it is. <laughs> Good God, I'm going to pee my Tim pants in anticipation. Tennis. You're like, and it was none other than. <laughs> oh my gosh. My head is spinning. All right. On that note. All right. <laughs> Where do we go from here? Uh, sign up for Patreon if you have a case suggestion we will prioritize you if you are in the murder lovers tier so uh, patreon.com slash stranger danger podcast and you also get bonus content so we would appreciate it so much okay love you bye bye